Good morning, everybody. It is August 26, 2022 with us today on Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. It's Dr. Steve Amon from the Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. And we are going to be discussing a few interesting topics today. Um, the theme of the month, newly diagnosed individuals or those who are experiencing change in symptoms. We're going to be de- taking a deep dive there. And the other area we're going to be taking a dive into is how to adjust the sales, how to change things in your life to live with HCM, not in fear of it and not running from it, but with it because we don't really have any other choice. We're kind of stuck with these hearts that we were born into. Dr. Amen, welcome to Tales from the Heart. Morning. I think I want to start off with an easy haha topic, and that is the newly diagnosed individual. We know, and the data is very clear, that the first two years of diagnosis of HCM is a trying time for patients. They're trying to figure out what symptoms are, what normal was, what normal is, and what it really means to their life to have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Can you give us some words of wisdom as to how you address these newly diagnosed individuals? So it's a really good topic because obviously people are confused. As as you've been championing for years, they get a lot of misinformation before they end up with someone who really knows the condition well. And they also do this wonderful thing, which is go to the internet and look it up. And there are lots of really dramatic stories on the internet, as you're well aware. And, and I often point out that people that live perfectly normal lives rarely blog about it or post about it. I, I remind people that there's a handful of things I think every patient with HCM needs to know and be reminded of. So one of them is that they're not alone. Anywhere from one in 500 to one in 200 people around the world has this. So there's more than half a million people in the U.S. that have HCM. It's not common. It's not super rare either. That it is completely compatible with living a normal number of years. And most people with HCM die from something else. But then we you know, talk about the fact that cardiac arrest can occur in just less than 1% of patients each year. And we talk through that whole thing. And we'll, we've had podcasts on that before. We talk about the fact that we need to talk about the risk to their family members. So how are we going to screen them? All of our therapies, apart from those who are at high risk for cardiac arrest, are designed to relieve symptoms, which means if you don't have symptoms, you don't necessarily have to suffer being on a medication or you don't have to have an operation just because you have this condition. You can live that life active and asymptomatic without intervention. And then, then there are some healthy lifestyle things. You know, it, it's there's no special diet. It's the same healthy diet we're all supposed to eat. Hydration is important, particularly if you have outflow tract obstruction. And we do want you to have some level of activity as part of being a healthy human being. And so all of those things are part of the, the list of things that all of the patients need to be counseled about. And, and the education needs to be reinforced from time to time because it's easy to get to get locked into this multisyllabic diagnosis with scary things on the internet. Multisyllabic diagnosis. I like that term. I may use that at some point. It, it is a mouthful to get out there, especially yeah, yeah. when you're a young person. So somebody's been diagnosed and they immediately think because they read something on the internet about sudden death and HCM that that's their pathway and that's their fate. How do we work through with somebody what their individualized risks are? A couple of things. It seems that that people that have the more severe expression of HCM, be that hypertrophy, be that onset at a young, young age, uh, be that early AFib uh, or early symptoms are more likely to have a more complicated life course with this condition than someone who gets diagnosed with mild hypertrophy in middle age 
uh, and everything is fine and it just is, is more of an echocardiographic or electrocardiographic diagnosis and they're otherwise doing well. The risk that people are often worried about the risk of dying, the sudden cardiac arrest risk. Well, that's, that is a long conversation with each patient that takes into account their family history, their personal history, the features on their echocardiogram, their electrocardiogram, the monitoring they've had. And, and that's a very personal assessment for each person, which also includes what that person's fears are and what that person's fears may not be as we help deciding whether or not that patient wants to get a defibrillator or not. So that's that's one level of risk. The risk of getting symptoms long-term, you know, it's likely that patients at some point in life will have some symptom related to their HCM. Some people are very minor and transient and easy to take care of. And some people, you know, develop significant symptoms from outflow tract obstruction that seem to require each step, including therapies as much as surgery or ablation or those kind of things. And, and that's hard to predict on visit one, unless again, the person shows up highly symptomatic with very severe hypertrophy, a really abnormal echocardiogram or MRI. Those patients are more likely to have complications, but visit one rarely is something you can make predictions on. So a patient comes in and they don't normally get every single test in the first visit. It takes a couple of weeks to get everything organized and get the data, give people time to think. We know that there's this critical part of the guidelines called shared decision-making, and we have to get that person's knowledge to a level that they can share in that decision and they understand what's on the table. I do hope that the HCMA is helping in that endeavor to help people get educated to have those engaged conversations. And then they make choices in terms of sudden cardiac arrest risk. Are they low risk? Are they moderate? Are they high? Do they get a device? Do they not? And how often should somebody reevaluate risk of sudden death? At least annually. It's an ongoing risk. I recently had a patient who up until their fourth or fifth evaluation with us had zero risk markers for cardiac arrest. And their Holter monitor this time showed multiple episodes of non-sustained VT. So now we have to have that conversation again about this This makes you eligible for, for an ICD. And we talk about all the, the nuances of that. So it is an ongoing risk. The only people that, that don't need to have that reevaluation are people who get an ICD because they're high risk. Well, you don't have to keep on evaluating their risk for needing an ICD if they have one. Or someone who has said, I definitely will not get an ICD even if my risk is high. Well, then, then you don't have to put that person through lots of testing to assess their risk. They've told you what their choice is. So you don't necessarily have to keep on doing the evaluation on those people. So sticking with the theme a little bit and changing symptoms, this gentleman or woman, whoever it was, came to you after four years and the risk had changed. I'm noticing a little gap potentially in understanding for those who have ICDs, when do they get reevaluated to see if there's an AFib burden and how often should that happen? And is it age dependent? One of the nice things, although it can be a confusing thing, is patients with ICDs, they get their routine device checks and often the devices are registering heart rhythm abnormalities that the patient is not feeling. So we actually detect asymptomatic atrial fibrillation in many patients with ICDs who are unaware of it. And so then you have the conversation about management of AFib with those people. For someone who doesn't have an ICD... Or may um, not have AFib detection on their device. They don't have AFib detection on their device, then we really rely mostly on, in general symptomatic events to be a clue for that. Now, obviously for a patient who doesn't have an ICD, we're going to do a, we're going to do an ambulatory ECG, a Holter monitor every, every year or two. So we're using that a little bit to detect AFib, but otherwise we're really relying on a clinical presentation of it. There are exceptions to that. If we have a patient who, for whatever reason, their left atrium is really big. Well, you're probably going to lean in as a, as a managing provider and say, look, that, that looks risky for AFib development. We probably should monitor you more often, but that's pretty individualized as, as, 
as a general rule, monitoring for AFib is kind of accomplished with the ambulatory ECG and with most of the modern I mean, all of the ones we put in, we, we, we turn on the arrhythmia detection for all of the ICD. So th- those patients are getting monitored all the time. Sticking with the newly diagnosed person, and we went through the sudden cardiac arrest risk, which to me is always the top of the list. Is this person at risk? Is there obstruction? And how do we help them feel better? Or are they feeling bad at all? The next step would be to assess obstruction mm-hmm. and whether it's there or not. Can you yep. talk about this not being... Um, a simple task for some. But the obstructive phenomenon in HCM, the dynamic outflow tract obstruction, the word dynamic is important. It means that that obstruction changes as opposed to a condition like aortic valve stenosis where the aortic valve is calcified, that obstruction is fixed. It's gradually progressive over time, but on any given day or week, it's, it's the same. With HCM, the obstruction changes within minutes. It depends on whether you're lying down, sitting, standing, walking, when you last ate or drank, how much salt you've had in the past 48 hours, uh, how warm the environment is you're in, all those kind of things make this gradient go up and down. So one of the issues is that when we do echocardiograms with patients on their side, you're actually maximizing return of blood to the heart, something that we call preload. Increased preload minimizes the chance of that person having a high gradient or high level of obstruction at that point. So for many patients, the lowest their gradient is going to be during the day is when they're getting their echocardiogram. And as soon as they stand up from the echo table, their gradient's higher when they're walking out to the lobby. Now, there are many patients whose recumbent gradient is 40 or 50 and they've got symptoms and you can say, gosh, this person has obstructive HCM and symptoms that are consistent with that, we'll go forth and treat. But if a person has symptoms that sound like obstructive related symptoms and their gradient is less than 30 during the resting echo, then you have to do something to prove to yourself that maybe this person actually has a higher gradient than when they're laying down. You can do things like have the patient bear down, what we call a valsalve maneuver. We have the patients do squats in the in the resting echo now just to, as a simple way to do that. But many patients have to go on and even get an exercise echocardiogram to kind of reproduce the situation in which they get their symptoms, i.e. walking, and then get imaged when they're having their symptoms to show, yes, your gradient actually was 20 at rest, but it's 80 after you know two minutes on the treadmill, then that helps us do management. But it sometimes is challenging to provoke a gradient given our standards of, of testing people with an echocardiogram in a, in a lying down position. Is there a difference? This came up twice this week. There's always like little themes of the week here at the HCMA. Recumbent bike stress test versus a standard stress test. There's pros and cons to each. So a recumbent bike stress test can be a very valid means to try to provoke the gradient or elicit the gradient. And it's easier for the ultrasound team, the sonographer, to get the images when you're in kind of a fixed position in your thorax is, is setting so you can you can pedal. The downside is you're still kind of with your chest down, which can you can still get that preload being maximized and therefore not as likely to elicit the gradient. An upright walking treadmill test, much more likely to elicit a high gradient, but then you have to get the patient from the treadmill down to an imaging position while they're really short of breath or how to get the images. And sometimes the sonographer challenges to get those images quickly in that situation. We 
generally prefer the upright exercise because I, our, our teams have kind of got the got the methodology optimized to get you off of the treadmill and into an imaging position pretty quickly. And the gradient doesn't go away as soon as you're last step walking. Your your body's still in exercise mode uh, for for a couple of minutes after that. So you've got time to get to get the gradient done. But th- there are advantages to a soup to a recumbent bike if either the exercise time is going to be so short or the imaging window is particularly tricky in a person if they just get like one little narrow spot where we can get the beam having the sonographer be able to maintain that while you're exercising can be helpful for those individuals can we please address this from a center of excellence point of view in a community hospital that doesn't see a ton of hcm point of view catheter-based radiance can they be misleading well they can be misleading an echocardiogram as well Uh, and we can talk about that too but i'll answer your first question first so catheter-based radiance can be misleading so the typical way you do that is you have a catheter that goes through the aorta down across the aortic valve and into the left ventricle the least specific way to assess a gradient is to be measuring the pressure in the left ventricle and then you pull the gradient back across the outflow tract across the aortic valve from beat to beat you're going to see a pressure difference and that's a gradient the challenge there is is that if you do it that way you can't really tell what level that gradient was at was it the outflow tract was it the aortic valve or in some patients whose hypertrophy is so so big that their ef is nearly 85 or 100 percent the catheter might just be trapped out in the ventricle and just getting squeezed and it's not truly obstruction it is hyperdynamic function that shows up as this little transient pressure spike which is an artifact on the catheter tracing you can do two catheters one below the outflow tract and one above the outflow tract and, and measure it that way that tends to be what we do but there there again you have to be careful that you're not entrapping the catheter within a papillary muscle or those kind of things in the ventricle so there there are challenges to doing a proper hemodynamic catheterization and that used to be more of a ubiquitous skill, but cath labs more and more are focused on coronary artery interventions and now putting in new valves and the complex nuanced hemodynamic assessments, the diagnostic assessments, is just a skill that's not as well distributed across the country as it was 20, 30 years ago. I've seen a great deal of issue in this area the past couple of months. I think as HCM is raising its profile nationally, more lower level, you know, traditional cardiac programs, but not HCM programs are seeing these patients in higher numbers potentially, and a lot more going to cardiac cath. And I'm seeing these crazy gradient numbers popping up. 280s, 320. I'm like, probably not. They get referred to a center and they're like, no, it's 120. I'm like, okay, that sounds more like us, right? So it gets confusing. It is confusing. When you get numbers that high, it it usually is an artifact. There's a corollary to this, and that is if you get a gradient on any echo or any cath and you believe the data, and it's at least 50, let's say, there isn't a reason to provoke or to document a higher gradient. The gradient may get higher when that person exerts themselves more than usual, but that is sufficient for us to say, if that person has symptoms, this is contributing at least a minor component, if not the major component. There isn't a reason for me to have someone who has a gradient of 64 to have them do an exercise test because if it goes to 100, it doesn't really give them any new information. I presume it gets that high when they exercise if their resting gradient is 64. So again, we, we don't have to provoke everyone 
overwhelmed. We don't have to do hemodynamic catheterization on people if we have valid echocardiographic numbers. So I'm really glad you said that. Some people like to have tests because it gives them a sense that something's being done. And I try to tell people, do not do a test if you're not going to do something specific with the results of that test that's going to change the trajectory of your treatment and your life. Would you agree? Absolutely. We are always taught that you should not get a test unless you know what you're going to do with any of the possible results from that test. So there's no sense just to do a test for information unless you have a valid reason for doing it. What will be the actions if X or Y? And this is that decision tree that we help people here at the HCMA. Okay, why would you do that test? You know, And I have seen some people get some pretty intense testing. I'm like, why did they do this? You have HCM. That's not a test for HCM or that's a confusing test in HCM. And, you know, the more tests you get, this is a well-known statistical phenomenon, the more likely you are to get an abnormal test because human biology, pathophysiology doesn't follow, you know, so even a completely normal person, if you do enough tests, one of them is going to be outside of the normal range. And then to your point, you're going to have to figure out what you're going to do when that test is abnormal someone's magnesium is abnormal and everything else is normal. What do you do with that? Uh, you get you get stuck in having confusing, di- confusing dialogues with people when you've over-tested and therefore uncover clinically irrelevant but abnormal test results. Yes, you just brought up my favorite personal test. Every time I went in after transplant, my magnesium was like 0.1 below normal. So mm-hmm. they would always load me full of magnesium. Can you guess what happened next? I don't need to. <laughs> And the magnesium number would go lower because I just dropped all of that magnesium. And then I'd, yep. I'm like, do not do that again. Do yep. not do that again. After the third time I learned. So yeah, don't do a test unless you know what you're going to do with the results. So we have this diagnostic pathway for patients. They have figured out if they're obstructed. They figured out if they're at high risk. They've evaluated symptoms and maybe come to a realization that things that they once thought were normal are not normal. And maybe their exercise tolerance isn't where it should be for age and gender and body type match. And they understand where they are. Now, if somebody has to make changes based on that, and I'm going to focus this on the adult population primarily, but we can talk about kids a little bit. But if you're a pilot, a train engineer, you have a CDL, you're a policeman on the front line, you're a fireman you're an anesthesiologist, there might be implications for your career path. And can we just talk about some general ideas that you and I have through the years worked with people through on how to accommodate and adjust? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, so, so it's, it's actually a little bit easier for the patient who's having symptoms that 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 uh, we can get to a tolerable level for life, but is rough in their occupation, let's say, and trying to help that individual if it's a if it's a career topic that is mentally stimulating to them, it's something they like to be a part of, then trying to find alternative duties or alternative roles in that industry can be helpful for people. Now, there are some people who can't do that. They're like, unless, unless I can do that thing, then I don't want to be close to it because I don't want to feel like, gosh, now I can't do that thing that I was so good at. So it, it, again, it plays into the individuality of people. You have to have that dialogue and say, you know, if you, if you were a frontline uh, EMT and now we're going to maybe put you in dispatch because it allows you to still be part of the first responder network. But is is that going to leave you uh, dissatisfied because you're not the person out there 
uh, in the field. Some people would say, yeah, I, I, I don't want to be a part of that if I can't be the person who's on the line. Other people are like, no, I, I just like being part of this team because the, the holistic thing is it's a really good thing. So it's an individual discussion with each patient. There are some, there are some jobs, uh, someone gets an ICD, well, suddenly your eligibility to have a CDL or an FAA pilot's license goes away. And that's that's a challenging conversation that, that you have to have with patients. And again, sometimes they can find other jobs within that same industry if they want it. Sometimes patients are fortunate enough to be close enough and eligible for a retirement that they can they can they can go that way or sometimes people just have to have a career change that's rough it's a career change midlife and our average age of diagnosis is early 40s so you're already on a pathway and all of a sudden yep it's being tilted I will say, thankfully, the Americans with Disabilities Act has afforded some abilities for patients to stay in their their chosen professions. Um, But even as recent as this week, we were writing letters to, hmm, how do I put this without disclosing, Um, a, a state agency that's focus is criminal justice. And one of their admin accounting type staff is awaiting a transplant at home and they were going to pull the accommodation of allowing them to work from home because everybody else went back post pandemic. And we're like, okay, what part of waiting for a heart transplant are you not getting? Like this person's not commuting in a city with this situation. So sometimes we still have to write those letters and we have to advocate in that sense. But most employers are pretty good about making reasonable accommodations if necessary. But some jobs, I've had people who are lumberjacks in the Pacific Northwest, kind of hard to make an accommodation there. And some are federally regulated. And even if you're working for the federal government, they tend to write themselves out of a lot of these laws. Mm-hmm. So you may not have as many protections as you might have thought. But document is one thing that I've always told people to do. Document what it is you, you feel like you need an accommodation for. Have that discussion with your chosen healthcare provider and come up to a, a document that you can submit to your employer to say, these are the reasonable accommodations I'm seeking. And if anybody needs help putting that or, you know, together, that we can assist you with that. But talk get it out there. Don't put yourself at risk. Don't push yourself harder than you have to. But also uh, on the other side of this, the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in and of itself does not mean you are disabled. Correct. And I will often get questions. Well, I'm diagnosed. Can I get disability? Well, disability is based upon functional status and your clinical profile. I'm sure we both know people who qualify as disabled with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and most of them don't. Yep. You'd agree with that assessment. Good. Okay. So we have a diagnosis. We have a changing of sales for the workplace, but what about recreational activity? Should all patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy get a diagnosis and sit on the couch and binge watch Seinfeld all day? No, no. We talked about that one of our previous podcasts. I know, but I like to bring this point back around a hundred times to make sure everybody understood us. Yeah. So, so there are, there are now data that show that low to moderate intensity activity has the same beneficial life impact for patients with HCM as it does for other populations of patients 
namely the general population. So getting being active is helpful for all of us. We all sit too much anyway. So low to moderate intensity exercise is positive. The challenge comes at the higher intensity things. And there's we can always get back into the idea of competitive sports and, and those kind of things. But in general, let me just back away from the competition and those kind of things and just talk about there are actually studies that have been conducted on high intensity interval training in HCM. We have not seen the full data set in peer review yet. So I can't really comment on on whether what what the outcome of that is but patients with HCM should move <laughs> every day low to moderate intensity exercise those types of things the question always comes well can i play uh, in my rec league volleyball or rec league softball with you know that i've done for my whole life and that's a difficult conversation and again it's an individual conversation with the patient i have actually often ask people so that depends if you want to play tennis what kind of tennis player are you? Do you have to win? If you have to win when you've got someone else across the net, then maybe you shouldn't be doing that because the reason why competitive athletes are successful is they ignore signals from their body to stop. And if you start ignoring body signals from your body to stop, that might include chest pain or palpitations or lightheadedness, you're setting yourself up for, for potential badness. If you're the kind of person who can say, no, this is like my wife and I hitting the ball back and across the net and we're completely non-competitive, it's it's just a way for us to be outside and breathe fresh air and, and, and do those kind of things and we don't we don't even really run, have at it. That's that's that that's fun. So it depends on your personality you take into that thing. And will you will you stop? Will you choose to stop if you're hitting that limit and you you Yep. struggling to breathe, you know, the shortness of breath is worse. Will you stay, hey, I need a minute yeah. and feel comfortable in doing so? Yeah, I, and, and, and I, I had another patient who uh, had been a competitive mid-distance runner. So 5Ks, 10Ks, those kind of things, maybe a half marathon. And he was going to give up the competition and, and then just run. But then he kept on messaging me about, is it okay if I run it at this pace, like a specific- Miles per minute, yeah. Miles per minute uh, uh, pace. And eventually I had to say, look, you need to get rid of the watch. You, You either need to learn how to just enjoy the fact that you can be outside and running and not paying attention to the metrics, or you need to find a different activity because you're so obsessed with your pace that you are actually going to be ignoring signals that you hit 614 rather than 620. It's a very personal thing with the with the mentality the person brings into that. But again, the, the general theme is getting some activity most days of the week is important for health. The adolescent, which is always the one where we all kind of take a deep breath and go, ugh. Mm-hmm. This is so tough. This is so tough. The yeah. adolescent, uh, male or female, who has defined themselves through their friendships, yeah. through their social network, and through their activity of choice, how do we help them adjust the sales? Yeah, it's it, it, it's it's a big challenge, as you say. It's I mean, it's a difficult time, regardless. It's very difficult if you end up with a medical diagnosis of any kind, particularly one that may limit your ability to uh, continue to participate for various reasons. And, and, and that's, that's, that's a challenge. They're, you know, again, they, they can consider, can, you know, if, if you were a, 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 a basketball player and you have symptomatic obstructive HCM, so you actually can't even practice at the level of your teammates, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to likely be on the team, right? 
but can yeah. you, do you want to help with the team in some way? Do you want to be a manager or, you know, assistant coach in practice or something like that? Again, that gets down to whether the individual would find that to be rewarding. I'm still involved with this group of people in an interactive way that I enjoy, or will it highlight to you what you're missing and make you feel worse about the situation because you're that close to it, but you can't actually do what you actually love. And I mean, that's hard enough for, for adults, uh, super hard for adolescents. And sometimes, I mean, obviously it involves the care team, it involves the patients, it involves the parents. And sometimes we've gotten uh, counselors involved with those kind of things to help the, the individuals sort through their feelings and and coping mechanisms and those types of things. It's a challenge for the parent as well. The parent may have also set up their social network around the child's social network Mm -hmm. and thereby, you know, and maybe there's more than one child and one has HCM and one does not have HCM. And Kevin just posted a question here on Facebook saying, how do I sort out the myriad of scenarios and all the variables? How do I know if I missed anything? Well, part of it is to listen to podcasts like Tales from the Heart and get some thought-provoking ideas that you can think about with your family. Another is to look at our membership options and we have a journal that you can help keep your own notes in, keep your thoughts together. We have lots of educational opportunities for you to join in on and help you prepare for these conversations with your, your chosen team. And I think it's really important to look at things from various points of view, from the physician's point of view, from the nurse practitioner's point of view, from your point of view, from your wife's point of view, from your your occupation. You have to look at every way that HCM can be impacting your life and make sure that you have thought out what you need to in each of those scenarios. We can help you with that at the HCMA and we can help prepare you for these conversations and sometimes just talking it out, saying, no, I don't really need to worry about the athletic thing. I just play some pickup basketball with my buddies at the corner once in a while. Nothing competitive. It's not my life. Okay. And then I'll have somebody else who says, no, I run, I need to get back to triathlons. How do I do it safely? Like you need to work with your team and you need to come up with a really good plan. So it varies. Your anatomy varies. Your wishes vary. Your access to care varies. There's so many variables. And I've been doing this for 27 years, over 15,000 families with HCM. I've never seen two exactly the same. Steve, have you? No, they're all they're all different. Every family is unique, and you have to be open to that. And that's probably the, mo- the most fun part of my job. I get to talk to all kinds of different people every day. It's awesome. I want to kind of pivot to some questions that have been coming up in the community as of late. Um, And this comes into adjusting the sales and what is available to us in the treatment buckets now. So I want to talk a little bit about Camps IOS and and I'm going to set it up a little bit differently. I didn't warn you. I didn't warn you about this one. Awesome when I do this too, isn't it? Back when we were both getting kind of engaged in the HCM world, there was this concept of dual chamber pacing. It was the answer. It was the thing. It was going to make everything better. Everybody would be hooked up with a dual chamber pacer done. Didn't work out that way. It wasn't the treatment for everybody. It may be a treatment for a select few still to this day, but it's not frontline therapy. And then alcohol septal ablation made its Mm ta-da. And it was going to be the thing for everybody and everybody should have one. And that didn't turn out to be true, but it is a good option today for some. We're welcoming a brand new therapeutic agent. It's got a lot of promise. 
but it's the new thing. So when I put it in the context of past experience within the HCM field, where do you see Cam Zios today and where do we think it might be heading or myosin inhibitors in general? Yeah, it, 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 it's, a, it's a really great historical lesson. Um, now, one of the things about, and I'm going to use the word Mavicampton, okay. <laughs> the, 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 the non-brand uh, name, is that it went through a ran- it's gone through randomized trials. All of those other therapies did not have true randomized trials. And for the, for the community that's watching, a randomized clinical trial is kind of the gold standard by which medical data are proven. It's where some of the patients are on the therapy, some of the patients are not. The patients and the providers don't know. And, and then you study the effects long-term and sometimes in the patients might even switch groups. There are surrogate ways of doing that when you have small numbers of people because a randomized trial of four patients isn't gonna answer any questions. You usually need thousands of patients or hundreds of patients, depending on how big the effect you're expecting to have. So Mavicampton Camzios has been through multiple randomized trials and there are good, good information in the data that it has positive benefits on many things. That said, that doesn't mean that it is the therapy for everybody. Um, if you, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give some data. And I'm going to give a, I'm going to give a paraphrased quote from one of my patients this week. Great. All right. So, if you look historically at something like myectomy, the success rate of taking patients at least one functional level better or more is 90 to 95%. If you look at ablation, that number is 75 to 85%. Uh, if you look at a drug like disapyramide, there isn't that exact data, but there was the study that was done, a multi-center study that showed over a three-year period of time, patients who took disapyramide, two-thirds of them didn't need to go on to more advanced therapy. And with Camzios, Mavicampton, 30% of the patients got a lot better, 30% of the patients got some better, and 30% didn't. So, so it's not like 100% of patients who took this new medication got better. And given the fact that actually 10% of the patients got worse and there's this REMS program, this, this risk mitigation strategy we have to do that, that puts some logistic burdens on the use of, of Mavicampton, some patients are reacting to that saying, gosh, that's a lot of work for me to be on a medication that I'm not sure how it's gonna work yet. Pause. The other thing that we don't know about Mavicampton is the long, long term. You know, I mentioned disapyramide has a three-year study. Ablation and myectomy have studies that go out 5, 10, 15 years now in terms of uh, symptom-free, you know, living, those types of things. Most of the Mavicampton uh, studies are now are measured in weeks, uh, their duration. So we don't know what it means to be a 35-year-old going on a drug for an indefinite period of time. Does, does the effect last for 10 years? Does it cause other complications for 10 years, et cetera? So, so we, have, we have time that we need to learn about the, the true effects of this. So, so my patient this week said to me as I was 
he'd been on first line therapy, uh, still had still had symptoms. So we talked about disapiramide, we talked about mavicamptin, we talked about ablation, and we talked about surgery. And I was going through the medications and he said, do I really have to go through all this medication BS or can I just get to the procedure that's gonna make me better? And there are there are patients that, that have that attitude. Taking a medication often adds complications to a patient's life. And, and uh, we shouldn't, we should be aware of that. You certainly are aware of that with a number of, of members that you talk to who are debating whether their side effects are worth tolerating or not, um, whether that drug interferes with other drugs they're taking and they have to go off of their cholesterol medication to be on this drug, but what is that leaving at risk for down, downstream? So, so again, it, it is the uniqueness of each patient and, and what, what they are looking for in terms of quality of life and what they're looking for from ease of the treatment and and different people view view those options differently well said with lots of data points because you yeah. know i love that um and i and i think it's a really important message to people if, if your symptoms are changing and you're looking for other options don't immediately think well i'm going to go with the newest option yeah. or i'm going to go with the oldest option yeah. you need to go with the option that best suits your lifestyle and you can't just look at today. You have to be open-minded to say, where am I gonna be in five years? Mm-hmm. Am I gonna have the same insurance access? Am I gonna have the same opportunities to get to surgery in five years? Will I not? Will I be good on this medication for 10 years? We don't know a lot yet. So it's, I guess I'm dealing with a word that we, or a phrase, that I believe Rick Nishimura came up with back in the 90s, unbridled enthusiasm. Unbridled enthusiasm. Um, and, and we have a little unbridled enthusiasm right now that there's an answer. Yeah. And I like realistic expectation. There's balance. a well-known phenomenon often described to new technologies, but it applies to new therapies. And it's, it's um, popularized by the consulting firm, the firm Gartner. It's called the Gartner Hype Cycle. And so when there is a new proposed solution, it goes through a period of unbridled enthusiasm through a sense of despair when negative consequences come out. And then ultimately you arrive at the plane of enlightenment where you actually get to see the long-term utility of that particular solution. Early on, I mean, and, and HCM providers, researchers in general, we're all super excited that there is drug development specific to HCM and we, we, we are enthusiastic about it. The question is, are we, are we still in the enthusiastic hump are is my is my statement about 30% of the patients not you know not getting better and 10% getting worse the pit of despair we just don't know where we're at on the curve yet i suspect we have not yet hit the plane of enlightenment because it's it's i mean it just got approved in april so it's going to take us years to get there as more and more patients go through the the rems uh, program get on the medication, we get longer term echo studies, those kind of things, then we'll learn the, the true the true slots for these new medications uh, down the road. I have to admit, I'm a little envious of people getting to diagnosis today. Compared you know, yeah. I was diagnosed in 1980 and it was, hmm, you got this weird thing. Yeah. Uh, good luck to you. Yeah. <laughs> there was some beta blockers and a calcium channel blocker and have a nice day. Yeah. Um, so I think while what we said might be viewed by some as being pessimistic, I think it's hopeful. 
I think there's so many options on the table now. It's a it's a new tool, and and it and it doesn't cause hypotension, and it and it you know I mean there's lots of things that it that it's a positive about the medication, and having a new tool is always going to be a good thing. It's just we make sure that we are using it for the right patients at the right time. Right patient, right time, right drug, right procedure. It, it's all about aligning, and I think probably one of the most frustrating times in an HCM patient's life is knowing that they're obstructed, knowing that they don't feel well, and having to make the call, when is the time to go to surgery? Because nobody wants to face it. Nobody wants to willingly go in for open heart surgery. Like they wanna be forced that you have to do this. Yep. But it doesn't work that way in HCM, does it? No, yeah, so, so, yeah, so, so, there, there are some patients who are who are more excited for surgery than others, but usually those are patients who have gotten frustrated with their quality of life or the or the logistics they have to go to to try to maintain it short of having an operation. But one of the challenging things with ablation with myectomy is it's essentially never an emergency and never a have to in the sense of someone who shows up in the ER with a ruptured appendix. There's right. kind of a choice there or, or, or not. Whereas for, for, for our invasive procedures, it is if you are dissatisfied with the quality of life you have on your current therapies, then we have this option for you. And it's never someone just saying, you have to have this procedure. And there are some patients that are super comfortable with making that decision. And there's others that, that like literally will say to you, can't you just tell me what to do? And How many and of those do you get in a week? Uh, it's a few. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I'm stuck there too. I'm like, oh no, this is not what I do. I'm not here to tell you what to do. It's complicated. It, it, it is a challenge. I, I think that it's becoming less and less a challenge because patients are used to in all of their healthcare options, participating in the discussions from which form of colon cancer screening do you want to get? When do you start getting mammograms? Do you want to have a certain vaccine or not? And and so patients are getting more comfortable versus what you went through in the 1980s or our parents went through. They weren't given options. They were told what the next step was, right? And so, you know, medicine and the dialogue between patients and their, and their doctors and their care teams has evolved to this dialogue rather than list of list of commandments. I want to stay there for a minute because you, you bring up a, an excellent point and a phenomena that can occur to the newly diagnosed and that's doctor shopping. Yeah. And it can be informative or it can be dangerous. If you are going and going and going to find somebody to give you the answer that fits the narrative in your mind, you will eventually find somebody who aligns. Absolutely. Even yeah. if it's not factual, even if there's no scientific support for it. And then there's another complication in our world, differing opinions from experts. Mm-hmm. And it's really confusing to be a patient when you see two highly respected individuals in the field say, I see what you're saying, but you could yeah. look at it this way too. 
Yep. Any words of advice for patients facing these dilemmas? It's a, it's a real challenge. So, so first of all, I think patients need to have a cardiologist in their local community that is familiar with them, even if they also are seeing some, some expert at a center that is somewhat remote from home. And the reason for that is, is some, on some random Friday afternoon, you go into atrial fibrillation and have symptoms. You don't want to have to have the local team diagnose who you are and what you are about. You want them to know that you have hypertrophic cardiovascular myopathy and this is atrial fibrillation and here are the steps that we use to manage that. So so you need to have a local team that's familiar with you and that your primary care providers know that you're also seeing this cardiology team so that they can help manage in the moment things that come up. Now, if you're a lucky individual and you happen to live in a community that has the center of excellence, you're, you're, you're good. But even within centers, it may be you don't feel comfortable with the way a certain provider interacts with you or communicates with you. It's perfectly within your right to see someone else at that center, to find a cardiologist with whom you have a dialogue that makes sense to you. Even if you might disagree on on a concept, if you can communicate with that person in a good way, that's a good team member for you. If you don't feel like you communicate well with that person, it's worth trying to find someone that you can, or at least, or at least trying to clarify with that individual. Can we can we clarify here? The challenge of if you see someone and they tell you that treatment A is right for you and treatment B is not right for you and you're concerned about that and you get a second opinion and, and the second person tells you the opposite. That's a real challenge and I'm biased. Uh, if, if one of those opinions came from one of, one of the centers and the other one came from a non-center, I would tend to, to, to believe the center because these are individuals, these, these centers have seen lots and lots of people on a weekly, monthly, yearly basis that they've seen a lot of variation of this and, and are super familiar with the, with the data around hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. If it happens to be a difference in opinion amongst two centers, it's, it's a little challenging and you, you might go back to each of those to clarify why they think their position is correct and the other one is not. They don't have to be wrong. They just have to be different vantage points. And yeah. those those create some challenging conversations. But I think at the core of all of this, communication is what is critical. And if a patient isn't communicating their wants and needs, yeah. and the physician's not communicating risk and options in a way that you can listen to each other, then it's going to get complicated. If you are being heard, and that's typically what I find when somebody's never been to a center and they've been fighting through cardiology at the local level and nice people, great cardiologists for the community, but didn't quite get them. When they go to a center, they say, they understand me. I feel heard. I feel seen. And that's an important advancement in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy because that was only you know, 20 years ago. There was just a handful of people who really had that level of understanding. And we've, we've grown the field, yeah. which is amazing. We have a couple of good mornings and hellos. Hello, Sue. Kevin, thank you for the thoughtful comments. Lutus, thank you for telling me that my microphone was a little wonky. I'm still trying to get used to the new desk. I need a boom mic, but then it stays in screen and I don't want to do that. So I'm leaning into the mic. So thanks for that. Ross, I think we answered that in but I'll ask it again. Center of excellence, quality of stress echocardiography versus community-based stress echocardiography. If you have your choice, where should you have it done? <sighs> if, if, if you're symptomatic and, and you uh, haven't had a 
significant gradient documented, then I think a center of excellence stress echocardiogram is what you want to do because there is a possibility of overestimating a gradient if the stress echocardiogram isn't performed carefully it's easy to sample the wrong part of the heart when you're looking for a gradient and falsely label someone or to completely miss a gradient that might be there. And, and so there's a sweet spot there that only a team that does tons and tons of echoes on HCM patients is really going to understand those nuances. And I'm happy to tell everybody that we have entered into a partnership with the American Heart Association to help provide some new patient education on echoes, stress echoes, and MRIs and HCM. So you'll be seeing that uh, second quarter of next year, which hopefully will create a little bit more clarity as to where and why these things should be done, how they should be done. One other topic, and then we're going to wrap for the day, variability in reads. So if somebody went to center of excellence or community, it doesn't really matter. Their echo tells us that the wall measurement is 2.0 and the gradient is 65. And they go back six months or a year later and the septal measurement is 1.8 and the gradient is 42. Mm -hmm. Is this the same? It's a great question. So again, the gradient can change. It can go from 20 to 60 within a 10 to 15 minute period of time. So the gradient moving around is a known phenomenon. It can even be non-detectable on one echo and within, within a day, have, have a gradient. So I wouldn't I wouldn't focus on the on the gradient because it's a very dynamic process. The wall thickness. So the analogy I use is if I give you the same lemon on two different days and ask you how thick it is to measure it, you're going to give me two different measurements because it's not a uniform sphere, it's not a uniform block or cylinder. It matters where you put the echo probe down, all those kind of things. So variations of a couple of millimeters are essentially the same. Big variations of five millimeters, 10 millimeters in a short period of time probably means someone was measuring a cord or something that's not part of the true wall. So it's it's an artifactual measurement, but the wall thickness doesn't change that much. But wiggle room of a millimeter or two is, is the uh, error of the measurement. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. I always talk about a 0.2 plus minus, And if you're in that zone, don't think you got better or worse. It's just yep. kind of normal variation. So we've covered a lot of topics today, the newly diagnosed, the change in symptoms and changing your lifestyle and also hit some Mavicampton and new, new therapies. I want to take a moment to remind everybody that October 22nd, if you're in the Northern New Jersey area, you can join us for Unmask the Great Masquerader Ball in Parsippany, New Jersey. We're going to have our gala and we are going to be honoring the four New York Regional Centers of Excellence. They will be there with us. Um, We're hoping that we can take this on the road in future years to other centers and other communities. Think of it as not a costume party, but a cocktail dress with cool masks on your eyes, not hopefully on your mouth. We will hopefully be past that. But the venue does allow for an indoor-outdoor space if COVID numbers do pop in October. So you can register for tickets now and join us at that event. And we have a Big Hearted Warrior Tour coming up with Brigham and Women's from Boston in mid-September. So you can sign up for that as well. And I do encourage you all to uh, to make use of our online discussion groups. They have really blown up over the past couple of months. We've got some great utilization. We're going to be bringing some new groups to the monthly uh, agenda, and we are going to be bringing some quarterly efforts as well on topics that um, you've been asking about, but maybe we don't need to discuss it monthly, but quarterly. One will be intimacy 
in HCM. The other will be um, caregivers in HCM and things they need to know. Those will become quarterly groups in 2023. So we thank you all for your support and we uh, will be announcing some new sponsors in the next podcast. But for today, we want to thank um, Invitae, Boston Scientific, and Bristol-Myers Squibb and Cytokinetics for their support of this program. And uh, again, thank you, Dr. Amon, for joining us from Mayo Clinic and all your colleagues at Mayo, wherever that might be, Scottsdale or Rochester or otherwise. And you're going to be hearing some, some updates on the Scottsdale program coming up soon. So stay tuned for that. Thank you and welcome. Goodbye first. Sean Kinese has been our podcast editor for about two and a half years now. He's moving on to other endeavors. And we welcome um, Jeremiah Green, who will be our new podcast editor and you're going to be hearing a lot more from the Green family and their work with the HCMA. So uh, some new names, some new faces and some new projects. Thank you all and have a great day.